Welcome back to the Ed Morrissey Show. As always on Tuesdays, the Prince of Twitter, the Regent of Red State, joins us, Andrew Malcolm, at A.H. Malcolm on Twitter. Redstate.com is where he's hanging his hat these days, and uh, we are all the happier for it. Andrew, welcome back. Thank you, sir. Good to be with you. It's uh, Tuesday, so it must be okay. You know, I, 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 it is Tuesday. It's got to be okay. Um, there, there are ominous winds everywhere, but because you and I are getting together and doing our Waldorf and Statler impression, uh, <laughs> we know that Tuesday is going to be all right, at least. Um, you know, we're, the big news, of course, over the past week has been the leak from the Supreme Court and yeah. um, and the impending doom, I guess, of, um, of Roe v. Wade. Uh, now... You and I often talk about Joe Biden and 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 this White House that doesn't have a strategic bone in its body and all of that. We can get into all sorts of different aspects of that, but none more, I'd say none more obvious than their refusal to say that, you know, doxing Supreme Court justices and sending hordes of protesters to their doors over this over this leak is, you know, bad. <laughs> I mean, how difficult is it to say, you know, maybe we shouldn't do that. And yet it wasn't until this morning, literally a week later uh, and several days after um, this group called Ruth sent us doxed uh, the five Supreme Court justices and published their addresses um, or at least their GPS locations uh, that that Jen Psaki finally got around to saying, you know, this is not a good idea. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, it, it's a. Uh what i think he wants his cake and eat it too uh which is uh, well let's uh, let's intimidate them but then we'll say that it, that's not really proper if you let it happen long enough uh you can say well look we said we said they shouldn't do it but it's too late they already did it yeah do you know so who you're actually gonna, you're gonna condemn it no they're not do you know who had a policy about this prior to jen Psaki and joe biden is that ed paul begala <laughs> Who tweeted out yesterday, this is wrong, stupid, potentially dangerous, and politically counterproductive. I mean, <laughs> yeah. yes, 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 and yes. Uh, wow. And you know, good on Paul Begala for, for stepping up and saying that. And uh, But Paul Begala isn't actually in the White House. I mean, I, again, I'm not criticizing Paul Begala, who's, who, who said the right thing here. But that's exactly what you know Joe Biden and Jen Psaki should have said, oh, Wednesday, yeah. when they were first asked. Yeah. No, he's, he's a, re, you know, I did a post at Red State a while back about how he's late for everything, not just meetings. Remember in, uh, at NATO last summer uh, for the news conference, he was over two hours late. He showed up late for the meeting of the, whatever it is, the six or the seven or the 29. I can't keep it straight, the group. But he showed up, Boris Johnson was chairing it, and Biden tried to insert something, and Johnson cut him off. You know, you're late, shut up. And anyway, he's always late. And so he's react. He's a reactive president, as I think you said mm -hmm. some weeks back. That's all he does. He reacts. He's not thinking in advance uh, or else we wouldn't have had such a debacle for the Afghan exit. Uh, he's not thinking in advance or we wouldn't be so slammed by this inflation now. Uh, so he does something or he doesn't do something. Bad things happen. He reacts late, blames somebody else, and claims that, boy, look at what I'm doing. It was with this aid to um, 
to Ukraine. You know, he, he was late. He was just flat out late. Yeah, he'd been talking for yeah. He, he'd been talking for months about they're they're going to invade, but the sanctions weren't placed to stop him from invading. Uh, the sanctions came late, and they're still being ratcheted up. Well, why don't you do all the sanctions at once? Kabam, you know? No, we do it inch by inch by inch, and then they're not as effective. And his aid to Ukraine, a little bit here, a little bit there, 180 million there, 800 million here. Then all of a sudden, 33 billion, and then another hundred and some million. Uh, it's just yeah. So he can point to it, you know. I mean, it's got it's it's what I the thing that just annoys the hell, the hell out of me um, in recent politics is it's not whether anything has substance. Whether it does anything, whether you did anything, it's how it looks. It's all about appearances. And so he can say, oh, look at all the aid we've done. But, uh, well, we can get into my column later, but uh, the aid he's done hasn't, uh, hasn't helped the U.S. troops. Well, right. Let's get into that. Let's, let's talk about it right now. The uh, VIP column for this week, which went up on Sunday, um, Joe Biden's given so many arms to Ukraine, now our, own, now our own troops are short. This is part of, I think, what you would say is part of the, the lack of strategic thinking is that oh, yeah. knowing that you, I mean, give the Biden White House this much credit. They, they predicted, they may not have had the, the date right, but they predicted that this invasion was coming. A lot of us were skeptical because we... <laughs> Because we were looking at the situation, going, "This is no win for for Vladimir Putin. He's not. He's not, he's not that, that irrational. Stupid. He's not that yeah. stupid. He's not that irrational. And unfortunately, we were wrong. He was that stupid and irrational. But the White House got that much right. But I mean, with that said, if you if you are seeing that and you know that you're going to have to have some sort of response, don't you start ramping up some of the production yeah. ahead yeah. of time so that you can make sure that whatever stocks you're delivering. Uh, doesn't leave you shorthanded strategically. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Well, he didn't, as usual. Uh, and now our own guys are short on javelins, for instance. Javelins, uh, Lockheed Martin uh, produces 2,000 a year. Well, just in one package, Biden gave them 3,000, nearly 3,000 javelins. They're wonderful weapons. But uh, Ukraine isn't the only one who wants them. You know, the allies want them. The allies are, are shipping some more to Ukraine. So they want to backfill their supply. So he's given basically a year and a half supply of Javelin. Now, I guess we still have some. The Lockheed guy, uh, the chairman, CEO, uh, said they're rapidly trying to ramp up production, adding shifts and workers. But it's not just on them their whole supply chain is behind. They have to ramp up all the guys that make all the parts for a javelin, which is an effective weapon. And every time a javelin blows up, there go 200 plus computer chips and there's a shortage of them, yep. which Biden hasn't done anything about. So except talk, uh, oh, we're gonna have a strategic move here to make more chips. Yeah, several years down the road. I mean, they're yeah, they're, they're exactly. helping Intel build a build a production facility, but that's not going to be actually producing chips for a few years. Yeah. Uh, 
You know, the one nice thing, though, about saying that, you know, well, we've kind of used up a, a year and a half's worth of production of javelins is that there's so many fewer Russian tanks that we're going to have to shoot out anyway. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> well, I guess they have. Our, our guy, Strife, is, is, is uh, producing wonderful detailed stuff. Uh, uh, detailed about the Russian armaments and their supply problems and their tactics and generals getting fired. And I mean, it's just wonderful stuff. And apparently they have something like eight or 9,000 old tanks parked somewhere all over the place. So, uh, but you know, I mean, I don't know who wants to get into an old tank and become a target for javelins shipped over from, uh, Alabama. Uh, Biden went there last week to call attention to the wonderful weapons he's giving them. <laughs> but then I think it was ABC had the, had the CEO on or CBS. And uh, he says, well, yeah, but we're, we're running out. <laughs> yeah. I mean, look, I mean, I, I, we'll eventually replace them, but this is the type of thing that you really well, wanted know, to have. That's, that's years, as right. Mike McConnell pointed out last week. It's going to be years until we pay. He sends over 60 million small arms rounds. You know, those don't just appear overnight. Nope, they uh, do not. Uh, and uh, helicopters, I guess we got a lot of helicopters, but um, uh, there, was, um, there was another, there's a, well, there's anyway, anti there's anti aircraft. We're sending over howitzers tanks, now, right? Right. Yeah. And um, and stingers. And stingers. Uh, yeah. uh, but uh, javelin and other anti tank weapons are twelve thousand in the last batch. Yep. Uh, going over, uh, and there is a uh, there's a link in my post to the page that details all the stuff that we're sending over. It's just, it, it's it's phenomenal. I mean, nobody of every well, I shouldn't say everybody, but I think most Americans, uh, as I pointed out in the column, are were fond of underdogs, especially scrappy underdogs, uh, because we were a scrappy underdog. I mean, who in their right mind in the 1770s would say, well, look, let's take on the largest military power in the world uh, in Britain. Um, and so we did. And... Uh, Thanks to the French. Now here, here's here's the thing. <laughs> I love I love history. Me too. So so we and the European powers are are helping out Ukraine, and in the end we may help preserve that country. Um, France, for its own, and we have our own reasons. France, for its own reasons, brought its fleet to Yorktown, and that's what convinced General Cornwallis to go. You know. I don't think we're going to win this one. <laughs> and, uh, and he packed it in. And that was the, uh, the victory for the revolution. Yep. Uh, so somebody helped us for their own reasons. Now we're helping Ukraine for our own reasons. But we're also hurting our guys uh, and gals uh, in, in the service who uh, are coming up uh, short with some equipment. And that's another sign of the weakness uh, of Biden that um, was a cartoon on, on Twitter the other day, with all these wolves coming in and they say they, they smell weakness. Um, and they were labeled, you know, Iran, North Korea, Russia, yep. China. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, this is, this is, this is, this is the moment. Although I do have to say that I think that China 
might be wondering just how effective its own military is after looking at the performance of Russia's. I mean, yeah. it's they've got the same issues, right? They've got uh, they've got um, they've got bad structure. They've got um, a, a culture that doesn't allow for bi-directional information sharing in, in any honest sort of way or incentive, yeah, or incentive, right? And so you know you can throw those you can throw those troops you know, on mass against, you know, Hong Kong or, or, you know, some, you know, some, some minor power or minor non-power. But I, I suspect that they might be taking another look at China meaning they might yeah. be taking another look at their, at their um, planning, yeah. at their planning and at their, at their preparation and thinking, maybe, maybe this is telling, maybe this is teaching us a lesson and maybe we better be careful about how far we get out in front of our skis here, uh, because <laughs> <laughs> that's a great phrase. Well, they got, I, I, I looked it up. Uh, I think it's uh, between 2.8 and 2.9 million people in their military. Um, right. And uh, well, I guess Stalin did the same thing in World War II, but in the Korean War, what the Chinese did was, uh, you know, they just charged. They didn't care how many guys got killed. So right. they just charged. I had an ROTC instructor in the, my military prep school, Sergeant Huff, and he uh, he was in Korea, and uh, he was um, teaching us about small unit combat and strategy tactics and so on. And he told us that uh, you know I don't know you know the the hundred was it 110 or 101 millimeter recoilless cannon you know those those big cannon tubes right. that, were on the, that were on the jeeps they're not tanks or anything but they were on the jeeps and you you pulled the trigger and it fired one tracer bullet to so you knew what you were aiming at and that was the warning sign for a tank that uh oh incoming in a minute right and then the, and then this big whoosh it was like a javelin except it wasn't a missile it was shot well the reason it didn't recoil was because the back was open and yes. um you if you stood back in fact when, <laughs> when we had a, we had a demonstration uh where they fired one and uh, they didn't tell us but then they said after they fired it, everybody at a at a dead tank on a hillside and after they fired it the 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 instructor said okay now turn around and he'd put about i don't know 15 yards behind he'd put a big pile of wooden boxes and they were all in flames because of the the, the whoosh the back of of the recoilless cannon right um and so anyway sergeant huff was telling us that when the chinese were coming up the hill they just turned those <laughs> those things around and they were firing it so the blast from the back they, they didn't care where the shell went but the blast from the back uh would kill a lot more people than the shell would have well that's actually a pretty smart strategy right i mean yeah, it's I guess, using yeah. using both ends of it so i mean that's actually uh, not yeah. a not a bad thought but uh, so, so we got that, you know, and that's one, that's your, your column, but, um, we want to get to your, to your, um, commentary here shortly, but I want to stay on Ukraine because the, uh, two things, first off victory day, as we're recording this victory day was today. Right. And there was a lot of buildup in the American media about what Putin might do on victory day. He might declare full, you know, full mobilization. He might declare a full war, you know, all out war against Ukraine. He might even uh, launch a nuclear or, you know, biochemical weapon in Ukraine. Instead, he just kind of stood around and whined a lot. And, 
And, and meanwhile, you had Volodymyr Zelensky in the streets of Kiev doing this five-minute walk down the street um, with his own Victory Day speech, which was really actually very remarkable. It was really yeah, he's stirring. He's yes, very good. He's and he's got either he's good or his people are good because he's what he says to the different audiences, the European Parliament, to Congress. Uh, it's uh, it's very effective. He's very effective, but I mean. So the question is, I mean, I don't think anybody got it wrong. I, I certainly thought that he he would use that occasion um, to justify some sort of escalation because yeah. he's sort of stuck. And that was the really the best opportunity for him to do that. Right. I mean, in terms of propaganda, that's really his very best opportunity to escalate. Yeah. Yeah. So he didn't. So what are we to what are we to um, what are we to surmise from that, Andrew? Well, there was a New York Times piece that that said that they uh, the Russian troops had pulled back around one of the cities in the east, which uh, you don't expect them to do during an offensive. So either they got something sly up their sleeve or uh, they're reevaluating. He, he's got to find some way to get off the wartime freeway here. It's not free, but expressway. Um, yeah. And he doesn't have one. I mean, uh, remember George Aiken? Remember him, the senator from Vermont? Yes. Uh, he, uh, I think, was it? No. Well, anyway, uh, he was a curmudgeonly old guy in the Senate. And during the, the worst days of the Vietnam War, he suggested that President Johnson just announced victory and bring everybody home and obviously he didn't but right that 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 might be uh uh putin's strategy is to say you know what we made our point we got rid of some nazis and uh he also got rid of a lot of his own people and so much of his own gear good grief yeah i mean this guy has lost an entire war's worth of material and yeah and, and honestly after watching it in the field, I think the even the the even bigger problem is that it does it, it never it didn't perform right. I mean, this is right, the vaunted right. modernized Russian military, which was supposed to be basically unstoppable, and here you've got and I don't mean to I don't mean to denigrate the the um, Ukrainians who fought like you know who've just fought magnificently in their own defense, but I mean this is a at best, a third-rate military, and it's just grinding them into the dust. And I, yeah. you know, and again, not to denigrate them, but that's really what they are. They're they're not yeah, much they're more underdogs. Than that. Underdogs. Well, you know, they they have a motivation, right? And the right. Russian troops, like a lot of them, conscripts, they were told that they'd be greeted as liberators. Well, um, no. The, these drones aren't celebrating the liberation. They're wiping out their buddies in these tanks. Uh, hundreds of Russian tanks have been destroyed uh, with the people inside uh, and the command structure. You know, I, we have to have spooks over there now watching and listening. Um, now, you know, this thing struck me. Uh, the intelligence people, I think that maybe this is the, the piece you wrote about. Uh, should should the intelligence people late last week and on the weekend be talking about? Yes. Uh, it was us. It was us that told them where the generals were to kill them, and it was us that told them how to get the Moskva. Well, 
That's insane to let that sort of thing oh, out. Oh, it's it's beyond insane. It's stupid. And um, but it made me recall. Remember, in I think it was December, when um, Biden came out and said definitively they're going to invade. Yes. So okay. So our in they haven't claimed credit for it, but our intel people have a they're plugged in, and and the Russians have had terrible message security I, I mean they their radios were were crap they were reduced uh or in the early days to uh stealing uh, ukrainians phones uh cell phones yep. and using them to communicate with each other uh and of course <laughs> the ukrainians could listen in on those so they knew what was coming and american intelligence was telling them what's coming so we knew uh, we knew when that when this certain general was going to be in a, at a certain base, so they tell the uh, the Ukrainians and they and they hit that base. Um, so they had uh, GPS for the the uh, the the Russian flagship. So they give it, and U Ukraine sends in two missiles and yep. goodbye. And I guess there's another patrol boat that was on fire yesterday. Um, so it's you know it's very helpful it's not helpful to talk about it no it's really uh, it's really damn it's, dumb to talk about it and it's counterproductive and it's going to incite putin uh i mean you don't like him you want him to look embarrassed but you don't want him to say oh son of a bitch and, and get really angry and yeah, do something you don't want stupid to, you don't want to create a pretext for expanding yeah. the war and yeah. it's one thing to to know that the, that the americans are doing this but it not being out in the open, right? It's a whole other thing to have us rub his nose in it. And yeah. the, I mean, it's it's really dumb. It's very dangerous. <laughs> really dumb. You it's, say that with a certainty that is really uh, uh, hilarious. I love it. Well, it's I mean, it, it's very dangerous and I don't see any benefit from it except for maybe if you humiliate him to that extent, maybe he'll, maybe he'll go crawl back in his hole. Uh, but... I don't see that happening. You get back to what you said earlier, the escalate to de-escalate strategy, and he's going to start looking for ways to force um, to force a resolution to this in his favor. And those are increasingly looking like nuclear options. I mean, and we're not talking about a Harry Reid nuclear option. We're talking about literal nuclear options. And yeah. the, the about the best thing that happened on Victory Day is that Putin apparently stopped talking about that, and maybe somebody reminded him that Russia isn't the only country with nukes, yeah, yeah. and and that ours probably work a lot better than his do, especially after looking to see how well that the how well the west rest of his material is performing in the field. I, I did wanted... a I did a column a couple of weeks ago that um, one of the big lessons from this invasion is uh, for countries don't give up your nukes, which is uh, uh, Ukraine yeah. used to used to have them. And uh, and we convinced them to give them up, and Russia and others to give them up, um, and promised uh, a kind of a security for them. So they gave them up, and boom. And I'm reminding people that uh, Muammar Gaddafi, uh, back in 2002, I think it was, gave up his nuclear program, and we promised that okay, well, we're going to leave you alone, even though you're a dictator. And sure enough, 2011, Obama joins the European coalition going in and knocking out 
Gaddafi. So if you're developing your own program or have nu nuclear weapons like Iran or North Korea or someday Saudi Arabia or whatever, that's a that's an object lesson that um, you don't give them up. No matter what they say, uh, you're going to lose in the end. Yep. So two other topics. I've just discovered the first one. You know that um, Jen Psaki is leaving the White House. Yes. Um, she's she's being replaced, at least at the moment, by Karine Jean-Pierre, who apparently blocks me on Twitter. I have no idea why. I've never interacted with her before. <laughs> I mean, I, 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 I have no idea what that's about. I know that somewhere around there is a block list that progressives use, and I'm on it. I don't know why they just... I'm on well, it because it could be that you're not progressive. Ed. Well, I mean, there there is that, but I mean, <laughs> but I mean, it's just it's odd. I mean, they haven't blocked Matt Vespa, right? <laughs> Matt Vespa apparently can see your tweets. I'm blocked. I have no idea why, but this is not the first time that I've come across some progressive blue checks that have blocked me, even though we've never interacted in the past. Um, I just find Which that reminds me, I got to block you. I, I've been meaning to yeah. do that for some time. Well, you're just, you're late on the, you're late on the, uh, on the... <laughs> I'm late like Biden. On yeah, you're very late. You're not thinking strategically. You don't have a strategic bone in That's your body, right. man. Strategic plan on who to block. <laughs> so it's, it's really well, interesting know, that the White House communications. Why? If, if it's, it's a needless talk about provocations It's a needless prov provocation to block people because they're going to know, right? And then they get to go, oh, I've been blocked by Matt Vespa. I've been blocked by yeah. Ben Saki or whatever. So you just mute them. Right. So I always wonder why didn't, uh, what was the name of the last president? Trump. Why didn't he just mute people? You know, he had that big right. fight about, oh, no, you can't turn them off, freedom of speech and all that stuff. Well, just mute them. Nobody knows. Nobody knows. They don't know. They just talk, yell down the well for the rest of their lives. Right. I know. That's I. I that's use the, the mute button. sweetest revenge. <laughs> I just use the mute button. Yeah. yeah me exactly. too. Oh, no, of course not. I. Don't. No, 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 no. We don't. We neither one of us actually. But I've one... heard that some people have done that. My older brother told me about the mute button. <laughs> that's, that's right. That's right. When he explained to me what all those, what, what, why all the, why all the frat guys went to Tijuana. Um, on the weekends, yeah. you know, he also yeah. talked to me about the mute button. So my older brother is oh, okay. one who explained that to me. Yeah, I don't know anything his, about it's his I have, fault. Yeah. I have no, no, I have no knowledge about a mute button. Second, second, um, second thing up, and then we'll we'll get into uh, the jokes of the week. But um, NPR yesterday reported that you know the whole Ukraine war is reminding everybody that the New York Times reporter Walter Durante really sucked. <laughs> Yeah. And and maybe that Pulitzer that um, that he won really should be returned and uh, and denounced. It was back uh, in the 30s, right? right? Where he where he bought all the Stalinist line. Not just bought it, but but peddled it, hook, line, and sinker, and told everybody there was no famine. There's lots of food in Moscow. There was like eight, I think eight or nine million people died from that. Well, at least three and a half million in Ukraine, and then there were also famines in the in, in, in the Soviet Union, you know, in Russia, um, that he was also covering up. There was there were there were food shortages in Moscow, and he knew it, but he didn't want to report it because he he wanted to maintain his access, access, yeah, access to Stalin. Yeah. Right. Yeah. He was part. He's parting it up. I don't know if you ever saw the movie Mr. Jones. Came out three years ago. It's about Gareth Jones who 
who reported on the um, reported on the famine and then got um, uh, denounced by Durante and the New York Times for peddling rumors. <laughs> uh, very good movie. Um, um, and I mean, I'm just still kind of surprised that the Pulitzer Committee hasn't hasn't just given this hasn't just rescinded no, this. No, they don't want to. They don't want to mess with that. Uh, you know, as far as they're concerned, that's uh, whatever it is. Uh, rotting sticks over the dam. It, yeah, probably uh, is they, to some extent. Uh, and although you know such transparency, but the Times is so is so big. The Times Times takes Pulitzers, and I guess the Washington Post now. But the Times has taken Pulitzers so seriously. They have a committee. Um, I don't know. They had a committee, I should say, and they had a senior editor in charge of it. And they were spotting uh, uh, really good pieces and um, uh, collecting information on them and preparing things, you know, back in the, the summer before. I, I worked with a colleague. Uh, this is right after the Vietnam War. Uh, uh, I don't know if I should use his name, but somebody can figure it out if they want. But I worked with a colleague in Tokyo and he was on home leave that summer and he had written a whole bunch of stories about the boat people. Remember them? Yes. The people that people that were I fleeing was, Vietnam. I was in Southern California when they were landing in, yeah. you know, yeah, yeah, absolutely. And fleeing in all these rafts and, and, and really dangerous things. Um, and he came back from home leave. He was all, this is in August, all excited, saying that, uh, oh, they told me that I'll get a Pulitzer if I just write the hell out of it for the rest of the year. So he did, and he did. Well, there you go. I guess yeah, if you I know mean, the formula. Say, I don't know. I don't, uh, I guess, ha having come close, I think, or been a finalist, I, I don't want to sound like sour grapes or not, but you know, the reality is that it's like the Oscars. There's a lot, a lot of politics involved. Sure, in this. Of course, yeah. Anytime you get a profession self-congratulating itself. Uh, yeah. I got, yeah, it's just, uh, it's not. There's, there's, not, there's, there's capital P politics and there's small P politics that are always going to be involved in those types of things. So yeah, yeah I, I get it. You know, we have a, we, actually we here at a uh, town hall media group, we have a, a Pulitzer committee. Um, it's uh, it's a bunch of us sitting around drinking beer and, um, and, oh. and, and, and poking fun at the Pulitzers, but that's our committee. It meets <laughs> once like a, a year. Worthy endeavor. I don't think, I don't think we're up for any of those awards. So that's, and that's fine. That's fine. I don't have a problem with that. Um, but yeah, the, uh, the fact that Walter Durante is still, is still shown as an honoree, even, even decades after it's, it became clear that, uh, he was thoroughly corrupt in, in Stalin's pocket. I just, I, I think it speaks volumes about the whole thing. So NPR is once again, raising this. I'll, it'd be interesting to see if the Pulitzer, folks or the new york times or both um have a response to this but we're running out of time um okay and so we need to get to the jokes of the week the jokes of the week well i have some old ones and this is a fallon replay he says a uh, a new study of parents says 12 percent punish their children by banning social network sites the other 88 percent of parents punish their kids by joining social networks. <laughs> <laughs> 
very effective. Uh, David Letterman, this is timely. David Letterman replay. He says, did you all watch the Kentucky Derby? Once again, it was won by some guy from Kenya. <laughs> <laughs> I love that stuff. It, uh, that's, uh, they're always winning. They win everything. Um, let's see here. Uh, so uh, this is a Fall another Fallon replay. It says, on Star Wars Day, parents of twins in Utah named their new babies Luke and Leia. People thought it was sweet, except for their other son, Jar Jar. <laughs> <laughs> I thought it was going to be Darth. I thought it was going to be Darth. I really did. I thought it was going to be Darth. <laughs> wow, Jar Jar. Boy, I hated that character, too. Oh, man. It was hated so annoying. Everybody hated Jar Jar. What a misfire. And, yeah. Uh, yeah. All right. Well, Andrew... You know, thanks for being on on this podcast with me, even though I am blocked by the White House press secretary today. I know, Ed. You should have a little thing on your forehead. I, I, well, actually, I, th I should have it in the bio. I should have my Twitter bio. Yeah, blocked by right. Karine Jean-Pierre. I mean, that's right. Uh, that's everybody. That's what everybody does, right? And they always have some somebody who blocks them in their bio. I, I, I should yeah. do that. Yeah, yeah. I'm not sure what Why I'd not? give up in my bio. But then you'd have to check every day to make sure it stays accurate. Well, that's it true. It doesn't right? become disinformation. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure that the, the fate of the world rests on my block status. Oh, with the, yeah, I don't know, Ed. The world, you know, people watch you. You're a trendsetter. Yeah, yeah. That's That's been me my entire life. I'm a trendsetter. Well, have you noticed how many people have beards? Well, there I'm you go. I'm just saying. Uh, you know, I, I'm actually following you with the grand mustache. You know, it's just yeah, that I, yeah. I got lazy down this side, down this part of the face. <laughs> That's all. All right. Andrew Malcolm is at Red State. He's the regent of Red State. He is the prince of Twitter at A.H. Malcolm on Twitter. Redstate.com is where you can find the rest of his stuff. Be sure to go check out both. Andrew, thanks so much for being with us this week. I will. You bet, Ed. Thanks. All right. Stand by for more from the Ed Morrissey Show, especially if you're Corinne Jean-Pierre. Welcome back to the Ed Morrissey Show podcast. Joining us again is my friend A.J. Kaufman of Alpha News, alphanewsmn.com, I believe. It is, or is it, it's at alphanewsmn on Twitter. Alphanews.org is their website. You got it, Ed. You got it. Hey, how you doing, A.J.? I am doing okay here in the Buckeye State. And you are new to the Buckeye State, and we're going to start talking about what happened in the Buckeye State because they've had a Senate uh, primary. Both parties had competitive primaries aj um and you wouldn't know it because the democratic turnout for those competitive primaries was at almost exactly half of the republican turnout uh is that that's the one metric that i took away from this uh in terms of a predictive uh flag a predictive indicator for for uh, november's elections um am i am i right in doing that what are you seeing on the ground in ohio that's an interesting point. I did notice that. I didn't write about that, the turnout being so much lower for the Democrats. I think we'd have to notice or note that Tim Ryan was expected to win easily over his radical left opponent in that primary. So I don't think that the fact that the Democrat turnout was lower than the Republicans was unexpected um, at all. The Republican primary, of course, being the most expensive one 
Uh, I don't know if it's in history, certainly in the history of Ohio, but you know, every year, every two years, the races get more expensive. So, and it was pretty ugly and you had five quality candidates, pretty different, different types of candidates. And I'm not surprised the turnout was high. Uh, I got a lot of national attention and you had some interesting characters involved in that race. Yeah, I mean, I think there was interesting characters involved in all of the races here, right? You know, the, the gubernatorial races, but certainly the Senate races were were interesting. Now, the gubernatorial race in, on the Republican side was a runaway. Mike DeWine was the clear favorite. I think he got 53% of the primary vote. I mean, that wasn't close. But yeah, he, was, and I'd like, I'd like to point out that Mike DeWine, he had two opponents, so that's why he only got 53, but he won by 25 or so points. And he was, you know, some people don't like DeWine. He was a little tougher on COVID than a lot of Republican governors, but he's been successful at every level he's been at in Ohio politics. And I'm glad he won. And I hope and I assume he will win also in November. But it's important to note that he received a lot of pushback from the populist wing and a lot of people on the right during this time. But he still survived easily. Well, DeWine, I think, is one of these guys who kind of comes in and out of favor from the um, populists. Um, but he's always delivered pretty, pretty well for Republicans overall, and and clearly, I mean, in the primary, this 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 shows, and it's not as though primary voters weren't looking for alternatives to the establishment, and by uh, we can tell that by what happened in the Senate primary, JD Vance ends up winning. Uh, you know, I wouldn't say handily. You got, I think thirty-two percent of the vote, and you had two others that were in the twenties, and then Mike Dolan, I think, was right behind that. So you had four people within with, with credible amounts of votes in that race, but it certainly wasn't an establishment guy who ends up getting that one. So I'd say you've got a, a fairly robust um, level of Republican engagement in this, and really across the ideological, the Republican ideological spectrum. Yeah, Ohio's getting redder. Uh, there's no doubt about it. I live in a more rural county. Um, I believe it's part of Jim Jordan's oddly designed district somewhere, even though he goes all the way up hundreds of miles away and south. But, um, you know, Ohio has a lot of rural counties. Uh, I believe almost three quarters of Ohio are considered rural counties. And we know that Joe Biden, for example, got obliterated in rural counties, even though he won in 2020. He got like 15 percent of the rural counties. Now, Trump got over 2000. He got like 400. Right. Um, and the Democrats have been shedding rural counties for years now since bill clinton who won you know a thousand rural counties i think i read and biden only won like 150 just think about that so i saw in my area i saw a lot more mendel signs he had josh mendel he had the name recognition he had run in 2012 and lost to sherrod brown who was a populist democrat senator kind of the one of the last rare working class democrat senators even though he's very left wing in many ways um, but Mandel lost again, and he didn't run the campaign that a lot of people had hoped for. It was a kind of a bombastic, populistic, try, desperately looking for Trump supporters and Trump's approval, didn't get the endorsement. And of course, when Trump endorsed Vance about 10 days before the election, the polls started to turn very quickly. So it wasn't a total surprise that Vance won, even though there was a lot of pushback from not just the establishment, but from, I wouldn't call it Club for Growth establishment necessarily, I mean, a lot of conservatives didn't like J.D. Vance's anti-Donald Trump comments that he did. He levied five, six years ago, and right. he switched on that. But he had called Trump horrible names, worse names than I've, you or I've ever called him or anything like that. And now, then he called him the greatest president of his lifetime. And he went down to Mar-a-Lago to genuflect and kiss the ring. But some people thought that Trump's endorsement of Vance was a 
betrayal or even quote unquote reeked of the swamp. So we'll see. Vance is going to have an interesting, interesting race coming up because he's got to figure out whether he's going to be a populist working class guy from small town, <laughs> Ohio, or a big tech San Francisco living oligarch who made seven figures a year from what I understand for a couple of years, or if he's going to be someone who appeals to the suburban Republicans that certainly Donald Trump and other populists have trouble getting on their side. And we'll talk a little more about his opponent. Yeah, well, I mean, uh, we're going to talk definitely about his opponent because that that, that ties into the big story of the week, right? Uh, but the, the, the BS, the BS. The BS! <laughs> we should use that. We you, you and I should use that whenever you're on here. What's the <laughs> BS this week, A.J. Kaufman? Um, well, I'll, I'll go ahead and throw it out to you. What's the BS this week, A.J. Kaufman? You tell me. Uh, Biden wants to ban menthol cigarettes. Uh, that, that's the big story? That was the big story Monday <laughs> until about 7 p.m. That was the big story for about 24 hours. I was. It was a fascinating story because he was alienating the African-Americans who tend to apparently like menthol cigarettes. And it was a big news story. And then eh, everything changed around 7 p.m. on Monday. Yeah. Um, yeah. The menthol cigarette story actually is, is kind of interesting just because it of the way. It is kind of interesting. Yeah. <laughs> But it, uh, it is certainly not the big story this week, or at least it isn't any longer. And Tim Ryan is the uh, Democrat uh, nominee for this open Senate seat. I and mean, people have to remember that we don't actually have an incumbent in Ohio that's running for re-election here because um, um, Rob, Rob Portman, Portman. Uh, retired. Who, and by the way, would have soared, sailed to re-election. Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, he's a very so, popular guy. It's unfortunate, Portman. but it is what it is. Well, I think he just got tired. Uh, I think he, he just, he I think he, he just, did. yeah, <laughs> said, I'm tired of this. I, I, I want to do other things with my life. And, you know, God bless him. I, I think he's, a, what was a two-term or three-term? Two-term, so, two-term, but two -term. he's been in politics for a while. Yep. That's a, that's as much as you need to do, I think. And then I you move so. on and I let somebody so. else, let somebody else uh, do it. Um, and then we've got Pat Toomey over in, in Pennsylvania, a very similar case. We're going to talk about that there a little bit. But Tim Ryan is uh, the nominee. And normally you'd say, well, this is the Democrats getting smart because Tim Ryan is widely seen as a moderate Democrat. He, people don't maybe recall this, but he actually challenged Nancy Pelosi for uh, the caucus leadership. I don't think, I think it was when they were in the minority. I don't think it was over a speaker yeah, it was right position. right after Trump was elected. Yeah. Yep. And, um, lost but i think um made the point that the centrists weren't you know the centrists and moderates weren't being well represented in leadership um to which of course pelosi did nothing anyway but um but it was sort of a go-to guy and you'd hear him on conservative radio because he's one of the few you know democrats that were willing to push back against nancy pelosi um that seems to have come to a screeching halt this week though because <laughs> Tim Ryan, all of a sudden, on the BS, the big story, um, suddenly has lined himself up foursquare with abortion rights extremists, and um, and I think that that's a that's a no that is a no es bueno position if you're running in Ohio. Yeah, I mean, and maybe in Pennsylvania too, frankly, right. um, and who knows about Michigan and Wisconsin? Anyway, yeah, Ryan ran for president, you may recall, in 2020, one of the one of the many Democrats who were involved in maybe a debate or two and uh, never made it anywhere close to Iowa. Um, you know, right. Some wonderful names like Bill de Blasio and Jay Inslee, some great campaigns uh, and no one over. <laughs> no one will ever forget the Deval Patrick campaign, which I think lasted two and a half weeks 
um, in that game, which or the Michael Bloomberg campaign. And the only reason he had delegates is because he landed. He he, right. he, he launched it right in the middle of the actual primaries, rather right. than right. His was early. the uh, March first campaign or whatever Super Tuesday was, and he was gone. But Tim Ryan, um, you know, yeah, he's from Young, the Youngstown area, which is a working class area, the kind of area that Donald Trump and Republicans have made inroads in and are winning easily now after Democrats won it for, you know, 100 years because it's heavily union, um, blue collar Democrat voters. So he went on special report on Wednesday. It would have been Wednesday, right, after the day after the primary with Brett Baer. Give him credit again for going on a real show, probably the best hard news broadcast, certainly on Fox and probably, I think, in, around. And J.D. Vance went on Tucker Carlson, which, you know, he's not gaining any votes there. He's 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 welcome there and loved there. But I right. would like to see J.D. Vance go on a hard news broadcast. Um, but Ryan came out and he knew what he was doing. He was in Dayton or somewhere at a factory. And he said, J.D. Vance is un-American. He's an elitist. I'm pro-American. I'm for the workers. Um, J.D. Vance is a hedge fund guy. All the all the criticisms that others had advanced. And he did very well there in appealing to moderates and even some Republicans who might not like J.D. Vance. But then, unlike a lot of journalists, Brett Baer asked him about abortion. I mean, it's kind of a timely thing, 48 hours after the big Alito leak. And um, he really wouldn't answer other than to say that it's up to the women, which basically means you're for no limits on abortion. And here's a guy who I think he may have used to have been a pro-lifer, certainly not a radical on abortion. He was. He was initially a pro-life so was Joe Biden last so, Well, yeah, I think yeah. that goes back a few decades for Joe yeah, Biden. Yeah, well, I'm saying in 1987 or whatever. Yeah, yeah, right, right, um, yeah. But Ryan has been dragged by the NARALs and the Planned Parenthoods and the abortion wing to the extreme, maybe just in the last couple of days. And his new position is to, is to, well, he voted late last year to enshrine the national right to late-term abortions, which every Democrat in the House, I think, just about voted for. Um the Women's Health Protection Act, that crap that Pelosi and them put forward last fall. And more importantly, he is unwilling to even talk about, you know, limits, which is, you know, he went from a pro-life person to a radical defender of abortion on demand. And that is what it seems to be, uh, what, it, what it means to be a Democrat in 2022 or 2021 or 2023. And uh, boy, in a Republican plus eight or nine state, the last couple of presidential elections, when, when you have polls, that's, as you and I know, that and you've written well about this, I read your post on Monday night, you know, that I think two-thirds of the country believes abortion should be illegal after the first trimester or after yep. 15 weeks, and, and a vast majority believe, you know, it should be, uh, they don't believe in late-term abortion and things like that, which is not even being discussed in this latest um, Supreme Court issue. But Ryan's now with that small minority, 15 20%, that believes in not forbidding abortions ever, apparently. Which is interesting. Because Chuck Schumer is introducing a bill that would enshrine a conception to birth right to abortion without any restrictions on, you know, facilities or anything else like that would federalize abortion policy. Um, and this thing's got no chance. I, I don't even think it's going to get 40 votes. And the problem is, is that Chuck Schumer is floating this thing out here in a midterm cycle where Democrats are um, right. are, are already you know, way on the outside of the mainstream of American thought, pushing this bill, which is also not a high priority for Americans. I, I That's don't, the point. Yeah. And pushing the most extreme policy possible on this. Now, I'm not saying that there aren't extreme policies on the right. 
And you're right. You're correct, AJ, in saying that Republicans would do better by just keeping their mouths shut for a little while about this and seeing how it, how it all falls out. But I mean, this bill that Chuck Schumer is floating out there is is so radical that he is not going to try to work with Susan Collins or Lisa Murkowski, right. who are trying to just codify Roe and, and Casey in federal law, the status quo, or the status quo ante, I guess you can say, ante um, Dobbs. Um, he won't, doesn't want to work with him because he doesn't want to compromise. <laughs> and so he's taking a position that is supported by about 15% of the populace in a cycle where you're probably looking at eight to 10 Democrats that are going to be somewhat vulnerable in the Senate Democrats. I'm not even in the House. Senate Democrats are going to be somewhat vulnerable this year. He's bad at his job, Schumer. I wrote an article a month or two ago, maybe three months ago. Um, I can disagree with Nancy Pelosi on every issue and think she's a hypocrite and a far left person and out of touch. But I think when it comes to purely doing her job as leader, she's not bad at it from the Democrat side. Chuck Schumer's terrible at his job. He's always been terrible at it. The whole Joe Manchin fiasco last year showed that. He never and should have been in leadership. And this year, right. Yeah. And it'll never end. And Kristen Cinema. I mean, I don't know who else it could be. You're not going to have 97-year-old Pat Leahy be it. Or, and Dick Durbin's pretty bad, too. But I'm, as a Republican, I frankly like the fact that he's leader because he's just terrible at his job. And it is a trap for Democrats to focus on the Supreme Court issue or abortion right now. Their brand right now has never been worse. This obsession, and there are people on the pro-life side who are very interested in the pro in the abortion issue. I, I understand that, but this obsessive talk about it for the whole four and a half days is mostly among the uh, political class. When the predominant issues that are basically keeping Americans up at night, or whatever cliche you want to use, but are con concerning Americans, are inflation, our gas prices, violent crime, critical race theory in schools, failing schools, the war in Ukraine. Migrant surges, I could go on and on. Not abortion, even though it is a wedge issue like guns, and we talk about it a lot because it's important, but an impor abortion is more important than climate change or voting rights, in my opinion, which really I don't know that those actually exist the way Democrats talk about it. Right. Um, but it's, it's just funny. They're, they're, I, I would be interested to see if by Monday afternoon or Tuesday of next week, if they've slowly moved on. They've had their crazy rallies in front of the Supreme Court which if you look at, I don't like to stereotype, but most of those people out there are women under 40. And I guess, yes, that's who's affected by abortions, but most of them I'm guessing aren't married. And yeah, I don't know, it seems like an interesting group, a very young and naive and impressionable emotional group who probably had to study the issue that closely. And some of them may never even have to deal with, frankly, getting married and having kids, just saying. Um, I'd rather hear from the single, the mom of three who's in their fifties. I just would. Yeah. I don't know yeah. if that, but yeah. Uh, Tim Ryan has got to figure out what he's going to do. And I'm sure he knows that he wants to peel off suburban Republicans. Uh, you're not going to do it by being extremely pro-abortion. You, you do no. it by, by getting J.D. Vance to look like Donald Trump to a lot of people that are conservative or moderate who don't like Donald Trump. That's what you do. Not yeah, well, giving I, you advice, J.D. But well, I think he's got I think he's got an uphill battle anyway in Ohio. I think Ohio is one of those states that I mean, you take a look at that primary differential. And it the, the imbalance there is so dramatic that I think that Tim Ryan already had um, a Sisyphean task of trying to roll that boulder <laughs> all the, the way to the word. top. I hear that word three times this week. Was that you? <laughs> I read it somewhere else. It's a great word. It's a great, it's a great word. word. It's a great word. Sisyphus. Look up Sisyphus. If you I can know, smell I it. No, no, I know you know. I'm just talking to no. people who are. I mean, it's it's a great it is a great analogy for American politics. The, the only times. thing I'll say, Ed, 
and I and I understand Ohio is getting more red. Pennsylvania is debatable how red it's getting, but and the rural issue. But data data is important. I love data. You love you love. I data. love data. Yeah. Yeah. But campaigns matter too. We've seen that with Roy Moore. Jeez, <laughs> we saw that a decade ago with that group of Todd Akin, Richard Mordock, Rosie o, Rosie O'Donnell, Christine O'Donnell, Christine O'Donnell, and Sharon and, Engel. Um, all right, and on the other side, we've seen it with Glenn Youngkin who had no business winning in some ways in a, in a state that's getting bluer and bluer, but he ran a phenomenal campaign and his opponent was dreadful. Right. So I think all the data is important. And I do think that Vance has the upper hand, but he's got to be careful. And they've got to not just rely on the fact that you can turn out rural voters or what have you, because working class folks and suburban folks, you know, might like what Tim Ryan has to say about the, the anti-elitist side of things. But the abortion issue again is going to entangle him. Well, and JD Vance can talk anti-elitism all, all day long. I mean, that was hillbillyology. I mean, that's this yeah, whole entree into into politics. Right, and it was a great anti-elitism. Book, but it's a problem when you then went and worked for Peter Thiel and made fifteen million. Well, true, yeah, but I mean, Tim, but also Tim Ryan's been in Washington D.C. for how long? He has. He has. He right. has. It's it's hard to make it, an it's hard to make an anti-elitist um, it's hard to make an anti-elitist argument when your entire career has been working in Congress. Right. And Vance and Vance can make that as an outsider. But I know personally, I don't like when he, when he talks about how he doesn't care what happens in Ukraine. I don't like some of the bombastic talk. I don't even like when he said, I'm representing those who are, quote, uh, caught between the corrupt political class left and right. I don't find there to be a moral equivalence between the left and right right now. And the left is in power and they're corrupt and they're screwing things up. You know, it's, yeah. it might have been different. So, uh, no, but it but it plays. It plays. It I mean, play. Oh, that's why he won. I get it. All right, let's take a look at Pennsylvania. I want to take a quick look at Pennsylvania. It doesn't have to be a I'm looking. Deep... It's right over there. It is. Oh, okay, there you go. So that's where Pennsylvania I see, I see is. The hills. The hills. In case you were wondering, that's where Pennsylvania is. All right. Uh, Pennsylvania's Jackie primary is coming up. Sorry, <laughs> <laughs> well, you've, you've only just arrived to Ohio, so I'll let that slide. I'm facing south, so I know. I'll let that slide. You've only just gotten there. Uh, I'm still trying to figure out where things are at here in Texas. And I've well, you're been here in Texas, for so and you've got 800 miles on either side of you before you hit another state, so you're good. That, that's true. That is yeah. true. Pretty much almost exactly. Um, East all right. and west, yeah. East and west, definitely, for sure. Um, Pennsylvania's got a primary. It's coming up in uh, about a week and a half now. And 17th, as, I believe, yeah. yeah, the 17th. So as we're talking, just about a week and a half from now. And um, probably a week once we get to the once we get to when this podcast drops and you've got Mehmet Oz versus David McCormick and a couple other people on the Republican side you got John Fetterman mm. uh running John Fetterman running on this is and I'm talking about the Senate race not the gubernatorial race I haven't followed the gubernatorial race as closely um it's definitely going to be tighter you're not going to see a two to one Republican turnout advantage in Pennsylvania it's definitely going to be tighter um but it is still going to be uh, the prospect of comparison is still good because, again, this is an open seat. Both parties have competitive primaries, and both parties' primaries appear to be pretty competitive. Fetterman is running against a couple other Democrats who um, have probably who are probably a little slicker, probably a little bit better prepared than Fetterman. But Fetterman, of course, is this progressive populist who is um, sort of risen to the top of the um, uh, of the of the food chain there. And I believe he's leading the polls on that side of the on that side of the ledger, and then you've got a, a real, I'd say a real fight between McCormick and Oz here. Oz has got the celebrity. McCormick has got uh, probably more conservative, uh, maybe establishing. 
<laughs> yeah, well, Bonavita is for, for sure, right? Um, might be a little bit more establishment than Oz looks. Oz has got a Trump endorsement, which I was bizarre to me because of... Very controversial among yeah. Trump supporters. Yeah. Where do you see that going? Um, well, right I, I have some people in Pennsylvania I know, and they encourage me to watch the debate. So I watched it last night on replay. Uh, our old friend Greta Van Susteren moderated. Um, oh, yeah, she's good. Yeah. And, um, you know, it, it is a very interesting race. It's, 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 there's five candidates, essentially, just like Ohio had, and they're different. Um, McCormick has, you know, Trump ties, and he's sort of like the Mandel in that he wanted Trump's endorsement and maybe should have gotten it, uh, but didn't. And Trump went with Oz, who is certainly historically much more left of center than anyone else in the race, and um, questionable on his knowledge of, of, of politics and the world affairs and all that. And he did get, Trump did get criticized by people like Laura Ingraham and Steve Bannon, who have probably never criticized him for the Oz endorsement. They wanted McCormick, I assume. I would point out that watching the debate, there's a lady who people aren't talking about, and she probably isn't going to win, but Kathy Barnett, African-American woman, yes. conservative, I thought she won the debate. She talked about how she was a product of rape, when she was born when her mother was like 11 years old or 12, and her father was in his 20s. Yeah, she, she went, really went after Oz. I saw that clip. She really went after yeah, Oz. She was great. It, yeah, and she's great on schools, and you know, I don't know why she's not winning. Um, and frankly, she'd probably be the best general election candidate for various reasons. Uh, celebrity and funding. McCormick's got the funding. Well, oh, I, got yeah, the I know that, yeah. unfortunately, celebrity and funding matters more than actual policies. Yeah, I know. Um, and McCormick is, you know, he's a, he's, a, he's a wealthy guy. He's an investment guy. He comes off a little bit cocky. Um, Bartos, whose name first name escapes me now, is it Jeff? I think that's uh, right, Jeff Bartos. I think that's Small businessman, yeah. yeah. Very impressed by him. Um, full disclosure, I have a friend who's working on his campaign who has encouraged me to read more about him. And um, I would say he'd be a good candidate. I don't think the Carla Sands lady is a, a serious candidate, uh, sort of a socialite. She was, I was not impressed. Um, all I would say is, and we talk with the Democrats with the abortion issue there, is that Pennsylvania is not a red state. I would barely call it a purple state. I mean, it's, it voted for Trump once. Otherwise, I don't. I know Bush didn't win it. I'm pretty sure Clinton won it. So I think it hadn't voted for a Republican for 30 years prior. Um, and you've got two monstrous liberal cities at each end. The old joke is there's Alabama in the middle, but in reality, even some of the bigger cities in the middle, Harrisburg, um, Altoona, State College, where the university is, these are not Republican cities either. So Republicans have issues, but they need to get the suburban people to vote that are moderate. And I certainly, I don't know that Oz is the guy for that. And Trump's endorsement, which he basically based on the fact that Oz, quote unquote, said nice things about me, which is always the best way to endorse somebody. Um, <laughs> right. Um, it'll be interesting to see what happens if Oz doesn't win, um, if, if, if Trump will re-endorse or who wins. And um, But I think the Republicans' advantage is that the Democrats nominate Mr. Fetterman, who is the lieutenant governor, who is extremely left-wing. He's of the Bernie mold. He may try to moderate, certainly, if he gets the nomination. But I would think that would be a mistake by the Democrats to nominate him. That would give the Republicans an advantage because Fetterman is way out there and unlikable. And the other option, of course, we can discuss is Connor Lamb, who people right. may know a little better. Yeah, Connor Lamb is, again, one of these guys is, is sort of like a Tim Ryan. He's Tim Ryan. Yeah. He's a younger Style, version of Tim Ryan. Styles himself as a moderate, but really is completely on the left. Um, he's just not as strident about it as... John Fetterman. John Fetterman's really. John Fetterman. Yeah, John Fetterman is really just very um, enthusiastic about being a progressive. Connor Lamb is 
<laughs> a little bit more modest about it, AJ. Yeah, Kyle Lamb's a young guy. I think he's only a 37, 38. He won the, the race a few years ago that people paid attention to because it was a special election for a... It was a Pittsburgh sort of, seat. Yeah, it was, it was a, yeah, it was a purple Pittsburgh, seat. Kind yeah. of a seat that an area Trump had won, but Republicans hadn't won in a while, and he wound up winning. And so he is Tim Ryan in some ways, but he also voted for the Women's Health Protection Act, and I can't think of any issue where he's bucked the trend of voting with Nancy Pelosi as a rubber stamp. And so more importantly, when asked at a debate, I believe, a few weeks ago about limits on abortion, Fetterman said absolutely no limits on abortion, just none, Bernie Sanders style. And uh, Lamb said, you know, I think the right to choose is a right that, we, that women have all the way through pregnancy. So again, they've gone to this card of just extremism, women decide, nothing about the baby, nothing about limits, totally out of touch with not only the country, but certainly his constituents in his district, much less in the state probably. I mean, 80% of Americans, I got the number finally, believe abortion should be illegal in the third trimester and 70 percent do support parental consent laws yep so lamb you know again will he moderate toward the middle on abortion in the general election because this is one of those seats that pat toomey probably would have won again he may not be as conservative as some people like but he probably would have won well i would argue that he's more conservative than maybe some people like but he's not as populist as some people like i mean right it's a good point he's probably more conservative than, than even portman He's actually on, on fiscal policy. He's very conservative. Right. And he he took a totally different route in 2016. He ran. He was on the ballot the same year as Trump. Toomey was. And Trump and he did not get along. Trump didn't campaign for him and vice versa. But they both won. And it took totally different routes. Toomey won in the suburbs and Trump won in the rural areas. I don't know if McCormick or Oz or Bartos or whoever gets the nomination, which area they're going to go for or both. Um, something about McCormick in the, in the rural areas. He, it doesn't seem like it's a great match you know he's um but he is for, he's from you know outside of pittsburgh he's not you know right a new york city elitist per se but he's been around the swamp so to speak for a while well now he has yeah you know a few terms not as long as tim ryan tim ryan's been there for a very long time um but um the um but yeah lamb's relatively fresh but i mean you take a look at the polls there's a whole lot of undecideds in the uh, on the on the democratic side for the primary, but Fetterman is really kind of dominating the, the polls among those who are choosing. And I was just looking this up and, uh, you know, you, you take a look at this and it's, you know, you, you'll see that Fetterman's running in the thirties and forties, um, you know, 33 in Emerson, uh, 41 in center for opinion research and lamb is getting, you know, 17%, 10%. Um, so it surprises me. Does that surprise you a little bit? It I, does. I don't, it, it doesn't. I'll tell you why. I, I'll tell you why it's probably happening, though. And this is sort of maybe this will be all, our last topic for this, mm-hmm. which is that when you're in the primaries, you're really talking to the base, right? And you're talking to the engaged voters. And I think that just as it's been for the last few cycles, the really engaged voters on the Democrat side are the really hardline progressives. And so that's the reason why Fetterman has got an edge here among likely democratic primary i'm assuming these are likelies uh likely democratic primary voters um and uh, the populists are the ones that you're talking to on the republican side it's the reason why jd vance ends up winning in ohio it's a reason why i'm gonna say you know I, i'd like to say that oz is probably going to come up short just because there's a bunch of other issues that are now coming especially abortion right abortions come up as a big issue and as you mentioned that was um in part because of kathy barnett's um, 
it will, or at least it was highlighted by Kathy Barnett's attack. Yeah, and Nas has been pro 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 life for like twelve seconds, right? Isn't that right. Yeah, exactly. I mean, nobody's buying this. Um, but the the issue is is which candidate translates to a general election, where you have to get the non-base voters from the other party to come over to your side, and if you're electing a McCormick, and or if you're if you're nominating a McCormick and a Fetterman, well, I think McCormick's got a really a real edge on that. I think that the same thing actually is true of Oz for different reasons, but um, but I think you're you're looking at somebody who's going to appeal more to the center than hardline progressives, especially in a cycle that's just going to be dominated by all the damage done by hardline progressive governance in Washington D.C. And I think that that's going to be true in Pennsylvania and Ohio, which, by the way, even if Republicans win, those are only holds. <laughs> yeah, what, I know. This is what this is what I have to be honest. This is why. I, I hear people on the in the media on on the right side who are saying we're going to win the Senate easily we're going to take the Senate there there's there I've been saying this for a year I hope I'm wrong this is a very challenging map very challenging it is, the only yeah. reason there's a chance is because the Democrats are a disaster right now but you're talking about having to hold these two states and then pick up a net of one which can happen if we hold these two states I think we have a decent chance of picking up one somewhere now of course you got to hold north carolina and florida too and wisconsin which i think is a big problem but we'll see who the democrats run right now they've got socialists they might nominate which but even if we hold all three which is a challenge then you got to pick up one and you got arizona georgia maybe nevada maybe new hampshire but it's a bad map for republicans next 2024 will be a good map this was never yep. supposed to be a year that we would gain seats just so happens that joe biden kamala harris and the democrats are out of control and unpopular, thankfully. But Fetterman would be a mistake for the Democrats. Um, I, I can't see the positive. He's a jerky looking guy. He was the only person in Pennsylvania politics to endorse Bernie Sanders. That should be brought up every day because you know me, you know me, Bernie. I think Bernie Sanders is the worst human being in the Senate and the most right. dangerous in America. I do believe that um, in politics. Um, and that tells you something. And I, I think he also ran in 2016, Fetterman, and went nowhere. So I'm surprised Lamb isn't winning, but base voters, all that. Um, and I guess they're, you're talking about liberal suburban and urban people in the Democrat primary and they like this guy. Yep. Oh, go, go for it. Nominate well, Big John and we'll see what happens. Um, I think most of the Republican candidates would like to see that. Yep. Well, I think we're just about out of time. I just would add that this is gonna be a clarifying moment. This is, I think this is gonna be the high watermark for progressives in terms of in, in terms of controlling the the strategic direction of the Democratic Party, um, especially if they lose both the House and the Senate, I think that this is going to be the high water mark, and you're going to see people like Pramila Jayapal, Bernie oh Sanders, God. and the rest really um, uh, really have to take a back seat. Um, or at I least hope. I would think so. I would think so. Let well, me let me just say one last thing. Cause I I had an article that went up just before we um, went on the air. And I do think Republicans need to be careful about talking about this issue. They're, we're on the right side. The, the, the opinion's on our side. The leak was terrible. Democrats don't even want to discuss the leak, as either you or Alapundit wrote about earlier today. They refuse to talk about the leak. Saki won't talk about it. But I think we're on firm legal ground, and they have their emotional rage, especially talking about abortion as a cluster of cells or bullying Tim Ryan and Connor Lamb into being radicals. And we should definitely promote values that, that produced this momentous, momentous event, I'm reading from my article now at the end, 
but we must avoid playing into Democrats' efforts to make this a federal or ballot box issue. Yep. Let them instead hang themselves in their own president's convoluted claptrap. And I have a link to a Joe Biden speech. Republicans are in a great political environment and emerging victorious in the grand life and death battle. If we are hyper-cautious and, yes, conservative in our rhetoric, we will end the half-century genocide and win in November. I think that's wise. And I think we're going to leave it at that. AJ Kaufman, alphanews.org, at alphanewsmn on the Twitters is. AJ is too smart to be on Twitter. Highly, <laughs> highly educated, high IQ. Yep. Yeah, there you go. All right. AJ, thanks for being with us. Great talking with you again. Pleasure as always, Ed. Have a good weekend. Stay tuned for more. Coming up on the Ed Morrison Show podcast. Welcome back to the Ed Morrissey Show. Joining me now is one of my one of my best friends, um, Jeff Dunnitz from lidblog.com. You know him on Twitter as at YidWithLid. You'll also know him because he is the world's greatest purveyor of dad jokes on the internet. Am I wrong, Jeff? No. Something my daughter always complains about. Uh, your your lovely daughter, and by the way, congratulations on 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 her upcoming uh, nuptials. Yeah, but she's really in trouble because her future father-in-law is just like me. <laughs> so she's going to get it at both ends. Well, that's that's a, a topic for another time. We've yep. got we've got some other topics to discuss, but you know, blessings on your family for all Thank that you. they're all that all that all the good stuff that's coming up. Um, let's talk a little bit about what um, what's going on in Russia. I am shocked, shocked. I say. Uh, Jeff Dunnitz, to find out that Russians are the Russian government is somewhat uh, anti-Semitic. You know, I guess czars come and czars go, <laughs> but the pogroms remain the same. Well, it's interesting because my friends in Israel are really angry because of what what was said. And well, let's start. Let's start. Any... Let's start with what was said. Let's start with what was said in case people okay. are coming into this without the without the background. Sergei Lavrov, who's the Russian foreign minister. Uh, claimed that um, uh, Zelensky, uh, just the fact that uh, Volodymyr Zelensky was Jewish didn't mean that, there, uh, that, the, that the Ukrainian state wasn't Nazis because after all, Hitler had uh, Hitler was Jewish as well. The, the state of Israel erupted in anger, demanded a retraction, and instead the foreign ministry doubled down explaining all the different ways in which Hitler was Jewish. Um, <laughs> it's insane. It's absolutely insane, Jeff. Okay, so... With that background, well, if you looked at any of the information they use, like for example, they said that his grandfather was Jewish, but when his grandfather was born, there were no Jews in the town because they'd been thrown out a hundred years earlier. Right, wasn't it in Graz? Wasn't it in Graz? Yes. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Entire Jewish community had been exiled out of out of That's that right. city. Yeah. So it, it, there's no way possible. Well, he, and if he did have Jewish blood, it would like remember that last scene in Raiders of the Lost Ark when the head started melting. Yes, that one happened. Yeah, um, you know the thing about this is that this is it's it's a very familiar trope, right? And and anybody who's Jewish will have heard this that the Jews were really the authors of World War II. They were really the authors of 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 Nazism. Uh, they they were the secret force. You know, Hitler is to his dying breath insisted that the Jews started the war, right? And um, 
Do you know when they Hitler did all the rules about being Jewish and who gets thrown out? There were two exceptions, Jesus Christ and him. Because he started to believe the rumors. <laughs> well. I would normally not to put the two of them in the same sentence. Neither would I. No, I, I, I would not put the two of them in the same sentence. But, I mean, the state of Israel um, exists in large, you know, exists because they are there to defend, you know, Jews, a Jewish homeland, um, you know, which became a, a, especially, I mean, Zionism predates World War One, let alone World War Two, And the need for a Jewish homeland predates what happened in Germany. But what happened in Germany and Eastern Europe really underscored the central argument yes. behind Zionism, which is that the Jews need a homeland. They need their own state so they can defend themselves. So Jews can, well, actually, can aggregate and, and, and defend themselves from this type of the thing. The need for a Jewish state is in, in the book of Genesis. Because one of the first thing God says to Abraham is, Go to a, leave your father's house and go to a land that I will show you. Well, that land was Israel, what is now Israel. And then he says, I will make you a great nation. Well, the nation that he sent them to was Israel. So that, in my mind, that's what Zionists come from. Well, of course, that's where absolutely. And I, I mean, I'm not trying to discount the biblical. No, I, I know origins, you aren't, but, but I'm just trying but, to but, I mean, what you said. But I mean, the practical implications of, of anti-Semitism that was practiced long before World War II and World War One, and was practiced in large part in Russia, by the way, I will, you know, also emphasize under the czars and and, and continued under the Soviet um, uh, the Soviet system were are, are key points in in why uh, Zionism exists as a political force, why it existed as a political force, and why the state of Israel um, exists now. And yeah. And so having Lavrov say this um, out loud, <laughs> right? I mean, this is this is this is this is almost uh, akin to the blood libel, and this is a you know this is a official, a high-ranking official in the Russian government putting this nonsense out for propaganda. I mean, this sort of forces Israel's hand. Israel was trying to walk a a fine line here, right? They wanted I think to. It was wrong, though. What's because that? in Jewish tradition, they should be joining with Ukraine because of the the the, the massacres happening there. Uh, yes, and in fact, no no lesser authority than Haaretz was making that same point after Lavrov's comments, right? I mean, well, Haaretz is the same as the New York Times, so you can't. Well, yeah, but I mean, which is which makes them even more interesting, right? Is right. that you, you've got Haaretz, you know, I, I might expect that from the Times of Israel, but Haaretz is pretty leftist, and you would expect them to be a lot less interested in a confrontational foreign policy with the super, right. with the, you know, with a second-rate superpower, still a superpower and still a nuclear power, and yet here they are, they're pushing the Israeli government into a confrontation. Um, now, that anti-Semitism from Russia has been a big part of my life and my family's history because my father's father and the, his family lived in odessa which then was part of russia and because of getting beaten up by cossacks all the time because of the anti-semitism they left and came to the united states as a matter of fact to get away from them they had to run across roofs of houses so they wouldn't be seen 
to get to the Black Sea. You know, and you spoke of Zionism, one of the great Zionist leaders, uh, Zev Jabotinsky, he grew up in Odessa and, and he actually roots to write for the paper in Odessa and he left for the same reason. My first entry into politics was I got involved in the Triple SJ, the student struggle for Soviet Jewry. And that was another example of Russian anti-Semitism because after Stalin died, Jews felt it was possible for them to leave and go to, go to Israel, get out. And anybody who tried was thrown into a gulag or lost their job or something like that. You know, it wasn't like Hitler, but it was still bad. Yeah. Not everything that's not Hitler is is good, right? I mean, <laughs> you know, this, this is sort of, be, the, you know, the Hitler thing is sort of a reductio ad absurdum. And, and you know, it doesn't surprise me that the propagandists in, in Russia, you know, the imperialist Russians, are, are trying to use it again. But I mean, there's there's all sorts of different kinds of bad here. And what's happening in Ukraine is bad on its own. It's bad in terms of genocide, even if it's not specifically um, aimed at at uh, Jewish communities. Um, and, aimed and, at Ukrainians and children right? And, and women. I mean, that's the disgusting part. It is, it is. And I mean, I've, and I've said that this is sort of, the, the lack of action on this in some quarters, um, you know, even just to give up some comforts in order to confront this is 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 really a uh, complete uh, betrayal of the pledge, you know, uh, never again and never forget. Well, here's another thing about Russia. You've ever heard of the book, The Protocols of the Elders of Zion? Yes, I've heard of it. It's one of the most anti-Semitic books that yeah, is it's a, still used. It's yeah, it's a nonsense. It's a nonsense. It's a nonsense. Yeah, I'd be yeah. happy. That was that was written in Russia. Yeah, it doesn't surprise me. You know, the the thing is, is that people forget, and this is another thing about the whole Hitler thing, is that people forget that there there, there is a very long history of anti-Semitism, official anti-Semitism, all across Europe. Right? I mean, all across Europe, from Spain all the way into Russia. Um, and it didn't start with Hitler. And in fact, um, the Germans weren't even the worst of it before Hitler. I mean, the Russians and to some extent, the French were British were, were, and the British for that matter, too. Uh, yeah. But you know what the first anti-Semitism was? Egypt. Because if you if you again, using the Bible, the beginning of Exodus, the Pharaoh says, we have to take care of these Jews because they might get involved with another country and try to defeat us. That's the dual loyalty of anti-Semitism. Yes, there's a lot of there's a lot of different facets to this. But getting back to Russia now, um, you know this this whole idea that they're that they're going to use this sort of uh, anti-Semitic trope to uh, justify their war. What does this do in Israel? I mean, what what do you expect to see uh, the Bennett government do? What are what are the options for Israel? What are and what are the constraints that you see on Israel right now? They're trying to walk a fine line. Yeah, because they don't want to get Russia pissed off at them, but they're feeling for Ukraine. And I don't think that Bennett has the guts to take a side. You know, I think that would Netanyahu. Yes. However, 
most of Israelis are so happy he's not the prime minister anymore. Why is that, though? Especially in this crisis, why would that be? Because, first of all, his family was greedy. Okay, his wife took all the money she could. The second is, is he's power hungry. You know, um, he ruled with an iron fist. No one else could have an opinion. And that's why if you look at all the other people who were in led other parties, they all used to be Netanyahu people. Right. They got pissed off and formed their own parties, including Bennett. So would he have done more? Yeah, I think he would have taken a side. But people are much happier that he's not the prime minister. Right, right. Well, now Bennett, they're not crazy about Bennett either. Yeah, well, there was already, I mean, and, and this this is something else, I think, that didn't get a lot of attention in American media, but you already had some problems with the coalition holding together that's keeping Bennett in office, right? I mean, so we're, we're I mean, Israel is on the cusp of, uh, more elections, I think, at some point here, this this crisis might either strengthen coalition behind uh, Bennett if he decides to act decisively or might precipitate another election. You know that old saying, you get three Jews, you have 10 opinions? Yes. Now there's a whole nation of Jews. Okay. They're going to have a lot of opinions. And everyone wants to be the leader. So, yeah, I wouldn't be surprised. You know, when you had someone like David Ben-Gurion who helped form the state, he was looked at as a god or something like a god. Right. Um, Golda Meir, she wasn't liked in Israel, but she was loved in the rest of the world, so they liked her. Right. Since then, there hasn't been a, a prime minister that that really had the influence of those two. And even Bibi. All the other countries hated Bibi. And yet, and yet he was the prime minister that at least began the Abraham Accords, right? I mean, I think they're continuing yeah. under 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 Bennett, but he was the he was the one who was able to um to to bridge that gap based on, you know, obviously the Trump administration's um forward diplomacy on this, um, working with the various Sunni nations to line up against Iran and to convince them that they were better off um, normalizing relations with Israel in a common defense against uh, against Iran. And, and but it was all I think it was all Trump. OK, yeah, but possibly happened after Netanyahu left office and Trump left office. The Abraham Accord stopped. There were no more countries added to it. And at one point, people were saying, I think Saudi Arabia is coming in. Saudi Arabia isn't crazy about the United States these days. Well, and I actually have a, I actually wrote, wrote about this today, right? right? Which is the, the um, sending William Burns to Riyadh to try to kiss and make up with Mohammed bin Salman. I mean, Joe Biden was on the campaign trail in 2019 and 2020 saying that there was no redeeming value in the, in, in the Saudi government, that he was going to put the Saudis in their place, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and now that he needs cheaper gas and, and more oil on the world market, he's calling and they're not picking up the phone. And I think the same thing is true in regards to, you know, stalling on the, 
on the Abraham Accords, even though I think it's in the Saudis' best interest to continue with those. Well, what's interesting is the countries that are in the Abraham Accords all love it because they're having economic relations with Israel and their business is picking up. Right. Right. It's good but, for their economy. It's also good for their security. And I think right. Saudi, I think the Saudis recognize that too. But I think also they're not going to forgive Biden until Biden goes to visit them. That they have it king to king. Yeah. And I'm not even sure that that's going to do it, right? Because no, this is you're right. Because Biden has been so stridently, in one sense, rhetorically, he's been strident against the Saudis. But really, what matters more, and again, we're going to tie this back to Russia and Ukraine, what matters more is that Biden seems to want to give the store away to kiss up to the Iranians, which is, which is the big threat to all of these nations in that region. And what Biden wants to do, and I think what's very clearly what Biden wants to do, Jeff, is to just get the U.S. to get to to to, you know, retreat from that region of the world. And, and the interesting the, thing is, if you read the papers, it's Israel that's upset about the um, Iran deal. It's not Israel. Well, Saudi Israel's Arabia one of them. Iran but yeah. are fighting for which is the country that's leading the Muslim world. Right. Okay. One Sunni, one Shia, and. It's worse than one religion versus another religion. This is an infight on the same religion. And they're crazy. They're, they're fighting crazy, both countries. And Saudi Arabia thinks it's going to get nuked by um, Iran. So they're getting, they're buying nukes from Pakistan. At least they're trying to. Well, the other thing too, Jeff, is that the Iranians are, are financing and backing the Houthis and the Houthis are launching attacks on Saudi Arabia. They're launching right. missile attacks on Saudi Arabia. And, um, and they're, you know, the Iranians are in Syria backing Bashar Assad and in Lebanon uh, and in, to some extent, even in Jordan, certainly in the West Bank and as, and very much in, in Gaza. Uh, this is an encirclement strategy that Iran, that Iran has been pursuing. And Jordan is, is, has to walk a fine line also. Yeah, when I say Jordan, I'm not talking about the government. I'm just talking about that there's, there, there are no. groups in Jordan. Jordan is, Jordan's government has been, has been pretty strong on this. The, but the country is like 70% Palestinian. The king isn't Palestinian. He's Hashemite. He's Hashemite. That's right. The Hashemite so, Kingdom of Jordan is, is actually the official title of the country. The Hashemite Kingdom right. of Jordan. So that puts him on edge. Well, and the and the and the Palestinians tried to take over Jordan too. Yeah, that's they they killed a whole bunch of them and they they threw out Arafat. Right. He went to Tripoli. Went to Tripoli instead. That's right. Um, all right. So getting this back to Russia, though, I mean, this gets back to the Iran deal. It gets back to it gets back to Russia's involvement in the Iran deal, and Russia's involvement is significant here not only are not only are is the united states basically allowing russia to control the negotiations here but they're building a backdoor um bypass for sanctions right. uh for russian companies like you know um uh Rosistam, i think is the big winner here uh to uh to score billions of dollars from the iranians once they can start building nuclear power plants there um if you're the Saudis and you're looking at that and Joe Biden's calling you on the phone asking you to produce more <laughs> more oil 
I mean, honestly, why would you take that call? I don't get that. I don't I understand think the why Italian they did that. Answer would start with this. Yes, I think you're right. Yes, I don't know what the well, Saudi equivalent is. You know, the Saudis don't look at words as much as they look at actions. Right. And they started liking Trump because he got rid of the Iran deal. Yeah. That's exactly and he, right. And he guaranteed to the countries that were in the Abraham Accords, I'm not going to let anyone hurt you. Right. Biden pulled back from that. Well, um, yeah. And that's and, and again, I mean, this is they reoriented American policy away from Saudi Arabia and towards Iran and towards Russia. <laughs> right. I mean, they, they, they are. I mean, they're reorienting the, that region back towards Russia at the same time that Russia is first off you know, uh, conducting a genocide in Ukraine. And secondly, now that Russia is uh, making, you know, making these anti-Semitic claims and claiming that Zelensky's a Nazi. I mean, these, you're, you're asking Russia to, if you're Biden, you're asking Russia to be the guarantor of Iranian compliance to whatever accord that we're going to sign. And if you're, if you're Saudi Arabia, if you're Jordan, if you're Israel, do you, do you trust that? Absolutely not. Yes, but calling Israel or Jews Nazis is like when the DHS calls bloggers extremists. You used to it already. Well, maybe. But, you know, but maybe. it's interesting that Israel is starting to get close to China. Yeah, yeah, that's that's a problem. Well, but it's because Russia and China are still not great friends, even though they speak about it. And they're not getting protection from the United States. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Again, they have to go to someone with the bomb. This is part of this is part of um, the issue of the U.S. trying to retreat from that region. Right. I mean, that's the reason why this came up. And I forget who I was talking to was uh, I actually had a podcast. And I, uh, man, I can't think of Michael um, Oren. No, it wasn't Michael Oren, who's great, by the way. I've had a chance to interview him when I was guest hosting on on Hugh's show a couple of times. No, it was, um, uh, I'll, I'll think of it in a, in a bit. He's a great guy. I got to get him back on and talk about this. But he talked about this, about what the the overarching idea here is to withdraw from the region. And Joe Biden's 100% on board with that idea. John Kerry is one of the driving forces behind it, that they want to get out of uh, great power politics and leave the region to its own designs well i mean that's just simply idiotic because all it does is leave it in afghanistan that was part of that it, afghanistan was definitely part of that pulling out of iraq in 2011 was part of that right because this was also a, a, a driving impulse in the obama administration i mean it was the reason why they signed the uh, iran deal in 2015 they want the u.s to withdraw from from that region thinking that well if we were actually the problem we are actually the problem. And if we pull out, then then they're going to have to fend for themselves and they will be the, you know, they will have to, they will find ways to learn to deal with, with the world and it won't be a problem for us anymore, which is nonsense. All, all, all this is going to do is leave a big vacuum for Russia and China. And, and as you say, Israel's already looking ahead to this point in time and preparing for the future by building closer ties with China. Well, before 67, Russia owned the Middle East except yeah. for Israel. And after after the Six-Day War, 
it was the United States starting to build a relationship. The United States didn't help Israel for the Six-Day War. It was afterwards that Johnson started selling planes to Israel. Yeah. What's interesting is Israel is a nuclear power. Obama told the world that. Right. But they've never used it, and they have a rule not to use it. They came close once. During the Yom Kippur War, when Egypt looked like they were going to take over Israel the first yep. couple of days, Golda had them get ready. But she, they never pushed the button. Well, good. Well, no, good. Yeah, right. Um, because they don't want that kind of loss of life. No, no. But they have that power if they have to. Yeah. that's and, It's a deterrent. It's a deterrent. And the problem is, is that Russia might be looking at that and terms of deterring your ukraine from winning the uh winning the war there too i mean that's one of the options that may end up being on the table if putin starts to collapse so that's a whole other topic of course and but uh, i think that when you look at russia and ukraine it could backfire on israel okay okay because the whole nazi thing and that he's trying to rally his country about the nazi thing you know Russia had it worse during during World War II than the United States. Oh, absolutely, yeah. They okay. also they also helped initiate it too. So I mean, let's, yeah, that's but, the reason why is the the Molotov-Ribbentrop uh, Pact is the reason why. But yeah, but you know they lost like twenty million people. Yes, they did. So to the to the average Russian, the the the. Um, the Germans are bad people, and it was all caused by the Jews. So by calling you, uh, Ukraine a bunch of Nazis, and they believe it, it rallies them against not only Ukraine, but Israel. Yep. Yep. You all know, right. We, we've got, we've, I'm sorry. We've got a couple yep. minutes left, Jeff, and I want to make sure we get to what else you're writing at, at, uh, at lidblog.com. Well, today is... Um, Star Wars Day. May the fourth be with you. Right. So um, I found out that NASA was sending drawings of naked humans into the space. <laughs> of course they so are. I couldn't help myself because it was such an opportunity to be sarcastic. <laughs> um, but yeah. But it wasn't a turn on to the aliens because they didn't look like aliens. I was going to say I don't know I don't know why that would be a I don't know why that would be a, a thing. But Honestly, okay, I saw the pictures, the drawings. It wouldn't even be, be a turn on to Americans, to the humans. <laughs> you know, um, I also um, got released today. I wrote two days ago, but Heyroot sent it out about um, the parts of the creation of Israel that people didn't know about. Oh, like you know, there was five different words they were going to use for the for for Israel, and the only reason, yeah, it, they were looking at Judah, which was the the name of the country before the Romans took it over. Right, sure. You know, a whole bunch of things, and the reason why they picked Israel was they didn't have a name two days before they were going to announce their independence. So they said, okay, that's the best one. Go with that. Interesting. The, the, you know, because Ben Gurion had a committee 
that he went with. You know, the other interesting thing that I'm going to be writing about after this, because you can't go all Israel, but the there was a big fight between Ben-Gurion and Jabotinsky. And that eventually went on to Ben-Gurion and uh, Begin. The reason why is Ben-Gurion was a socialist, and the other side, Jabotinsky and his student um, uh, were, were non-socialists. They were capitalists. Right. So that was really the big fight about the creation of Israel. Kind I knew that one. Of, some Kind of something like what we're going through now. You know, I would actually and, and, uh, analogize that to um, the Republic of Ireland, which also had similar tensions. The socialists were... The socialists won, by the way, but... Um... But you speak Irish, they don't. <laughs> yeah, I mean, but I would I would analogize it to that because um, uh, that was, you know, that was a driving force in the early 20th century, too. I mean, you know, um, so that was part of it. Um, yeah, very interesting. All right, so that's coming up at lidblog.com. Lidblog.com is where you should go. And Jeff is on Twitter at yidwithlid, at yidwithlid. And, and uh, he's also on... I'll be in your chat room. You'll be in my as, chat room. As what, I usually are. And, and what, when's the next time you're going to be on the Shaftline Report? Every Thursday. Every Thursday. So when this podcast drops, folks, you gotta go, then you got to immediately turn around and go to the Shaftline Report to watch Jeff um, uh, host or co-host that. So... Be sure to check that out. Jeff, thanks so much for being with us today. Thanks for having me. Take care, everybody. Stay tuned for more from The Ed Morrissey Show. We'll be right back. <laughs>